Hello, everyone, and welcome to Data Femme, where we engage you with stories of how innovators across the globe are using data to achieve new heights in their respective industries. I'm Danielle, host of the podcast and founder of Decayo Data, and I'm here with Alex Merced. He works for Dremio as a developer advocate and data lakehouse evangelist. And he's going to tell us a lot about Dremio's work with Apache Iceberg and how these innovations fit into the larger landscape of how we understand data. Okay, well, it is so great to have you here, Alex. I've been looking into your impressive background on LinkedIn, and it's nice to, as we say, e-meet you. If you want to introduce yourself and give me and my listeners a rundown of your background in tech and you know how it led you to data and your current role at Dremio, that would be great. Awesome. First off, thank you so much for having me on the show. Um, but again, my name is Alex Merced. I'm a developer advocate at Dremio currently. I'm just someone who's like really passionate about technology. I've always been my whole life. Like even before I actually got formally into tech, um, I was always interested as a tech as a kid. Like as a kid, um, I used to play with like something called like RPG Maker to actually like program like role-playing games. Um, I was a computer science major for a hot second and then kind of had this like decade-long sort of diet uh, sort of uh different course where I kind of went down sort of like for a period studying cultural studies and then spent another decade in finance training people in finance so I have a really weird variety of experiences but then um I think it was like in 2018 2019 I was just like during that whole time I was still always studying programming still studying tech just because it was always a passion of mine and I was like why not just make it what I do all the time so I came into tech and I started start off more on the web development side um you know basically one doing um, a lot of like working for different companies like Campus Guard and uh, Crossfield Digital. Um, and then I spent the time doing sort of like freelance, pro well, freelance projects while working for those companies as well, uh, where I'd, I'd work with technologies like Gatsby, React, all sorts of really fun stuff. And then also training uh, new un upcoming uh, software developers. And I found myself just kind of often always wanted to kind of create educational content. One, because I spent a decade training people in finance. So I was always really passionate about educating um, and I'm also really passionate about like, especially like taking complex ideas and, and breaking them and making them sort of more tangible for everybody. So I would do that with like web development. So I have like thousands and thousands of videos on YouTube, just training in different programming languages, different frameworks, different all sorts of stuff. So I, so that eventually I realized, okay, you know what, there's like this role called developer advocacy where like, that's what you do. You get to mix your passion for technology with your passion for education, um, with a flair of marketing, which is another thing I've been very passionate about in the past. So it was like, hey, this is this is meant for me. So I started applying for like developer advocacy roles. Uh, I ended up landing here in Dremio, which introduced me to this like world of sort of like data engineering and um, uh, the the data side of things. And the last few years, I've just basically immersed myself in it, and particularly in the world of Apache Iceberg and sort of like the data lakehouse space, and really kind of understand like the history of the data lakehouse, the technologies around the data lakehouse, and now 
you know, I spend a lot of my time creating educational content and empowering people to, to one more easily understand this space, but also understand the tooling around this space. And it's been really, really exciting, uh, especially since like right now you're really on the forefront of trends. And again, particularly with like the the data lake house table format, which is what Apache Iceberg is and sort of like this sort of big transformational moment that's kind of going on, but sort of like, that's who I am. And because I've been doing this for the last couple of years, I also got to be involved in writing, well, the book on Apache Iceberg. So Apache Iceberg, the definitive guide which will be coming out early next year, uh, which definitely come, condenses like a, a lot of the things sort of that I learned and, and picked up on in that space in the last couple of years. And I'm pretty excited to, to you know, just, just have been able to leave my mark in the evolution of this space at such a critical time. That is fascinating. I have so many questions, you know, both about um, computer science, but mainly I really appreciated your description of what a developer advocate is I see this title everywhere and you know as somebody who isn't interacting within a corporate setting you know with a developer advocate I I don't really have a way of knowing and you just made it all so clear I understand the intersection of the coding and the teaching but how does the marketing flair actually play into the role as a developer advocate you know my role one yes to empower people and educate people but the idea is that i can't really empower and educate people if they aren't aware of my content if they aren't aware of the content that i'm putting out there so it's also part of it is not just like the marketing and branding of let's say the company that i work for dremio but also the marketing and branding is sort of like myself as as a as a figure with authority in a space in a sense so like this one of the things every time i've entered like a new space whether it was in finance whether it was web development whether it's data one of the important things is kind of developing sort of a recognizable voice. And that's where the marketing comes in, like basically having sort of like my platform. So like the podcast that I run, the, the, the my YouTube channel, building that brand around it where people know, okay, this is can be a trusted source for knowledge. That re does require sort of like, sort of like a, a marketing mindset and realizing that, okay, like you have to think, okay, who is my target market? Who, who, who am I making content for? What are their pains? When you are a developer advocate for a company, you're using education and enablement and and your technical your technical expertise um in a part to make people aware of a product that can solve a pain and that does require like again making people aware sort of like how that can one that you understand their pain so like a lot of it's like this really sort of technical empathy um and then to sort of speaking to that pain and then once you have their ear you can then educate them on the, sort of the the how to implement the solution technical empathy Wow, that's a that's a very powerful, um, you know, combination of words right there. One thing is like I always like to have a lot of passion towards everything I do, and I always try to look at everything and sort of like, you know, in a very sort of romantic light because I think, I mean, I, everything can be looked at and should be looked at in a passionate and romantic light because you know, and when it makes life more exciting, it makes the day to day, it makes the work more exciting, it makes everything I do feel more. Uh, impactful and makes it impactful when people can see it through the eyes that see it through those eye sets. Uh, if I see it through those, if I see it through that lens and I can help other people see it through that lens, it also, if they're working in the space, it makes it more exciting for them. So I'm all about sort of like that, that looking through that sort of passionate romantic lens towards technology and the power that it has and sort of that space to, to, to build that sort of nice feeling along with sort of the, 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 the business side of things. 
Well, it is Libra season for one more day. So <laughs> action and romance is very, very in. Not that Scorpio doesn't know about that too. So we got a lot of passion in the stars and in tech. I imagine that taking that approach has a lot, a lot of good impact on the company culture as well. I would say like Dremio's company culture has always been like very positive since the day that I joined. It's like definitely, there's a reason why I think it's been rated like one of the best places to work uh, by different publications. It's 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 definitely a very positive atmosphere. I always like to think that I I have, I I, I bring, you know, something to any company culture that I, I've been a part of. Uh, but again, I must say that Dremio's company culture is one of the, the, the best and most positive cultures I've ever sort of had the pleasure and honor to to be in part of i've heard the same um and that is really good to know because it is a cutthroat environment in tech and you know i think more in my earlier podcasts i talked more about company culture and work-life balance and mental health in the workplace now i tend to get more technical but that's still an element that my listeners like to hear about because a lot of people even if they've been decision makers and are more advanced in their career are applying for jobs. You know, there's quite a lot of turnover happening. So it's good to know. Now that we've covered the basics, I would love to hear from you on how Apache Iceberg and your expertise with it factors into your day-to-day -day role as a developer advocate at Dremio. Yep. I mean, one of the exciting things about, again, being part of Dremio is that there's a real sort of enthusiasm and passion towards open source. And basically the way Dremio is architected is it takes advantage of a lot of these sort of open source pieces to to, to build um, a tool that solves a lot of problems. And we'll get more sort of into sort of the problems that Dremio solves in a moment. But one of the, the, the base of these pieces are all oftentimes all have that Apache label in front of it. So for those who aren't familiar with like sort of like that label Apache, uh, first off, that first piece, Apache was originally a web server software. So basically there was this web server software called Apache that was open source. It pretty much powers most web servers on the internet. It's very, very ubiquitous software nowadays. So whenever you see that, like when you hear like Apache Iceberg, Apache Arrow, these are open source projects that got hit to a point where they really become community run projects. And then basically they made that next step of saying, okay, well, we want to make sure that we're always a community run project. And then they get donated to the Apache Foundation, who then now becomes the owner of all the intellectual property. So that way it's kind of owned by this sort of neutral entity that can help foster the project's independence. Um, now, and basically many of those Apache projects are, are part of Dremio. So you have like uh, Apache Arrow, which is basically an in-memory format. It has to do with the way that when a piece of software like Dremio or other pieces of software, when they read a data file into memory, how do we represent that data in memory? That allows Dremio to process data very quickly. There is Apache Calcite, which has to deal with how do we parse SQL? Um, and that is basically used in Dremio and many other tools and how they parse SQL, how they optimize SQL queries and whatnot. And then there's Apache Iceberg. And Apache Iceberg is in a league of its own because Apache Iceberg is a technology that basically creates a very, very important transformation uh, based on like, if we take a look at how data has been handled up till now, typically what would happen is that you would have these sort of two places you would put your analytical data. You have your data lake, which is just basically think of it as like a giant hard drive where you just dump all your data, uh, regardless of where it comes from and what it is. It's just a place to just hold it all in a sort of cheaper place to store the data. And then you would take a little bit of that data or whatever sort of your more mission critical data is, 
and then move that into a data warehouse where you would then turn that into like data marts and then you know that would give access to the data to your uh you know your different business units for like bi for data science and whatnot now the, this is all fine and good and it's been a fine pattern for a long time but there's two things that are happening one data is growing faster than ever and the need to use that data faster is more imperative than ever so the idea is i can't all these steps of moving my data are becoming one they're too costly because you're making you end up making a lot of copies of your data and two a lot of those copies of my data are now like trapped in this data warehouse they're trapped in this data platform because every data platform kind of required you to store another copy of their data of your data on their platform to use their tools and keeping all these copies in sync and making sure that they're all consistent and people aren't coming up with like different results it's a headache that most data engineers require they build all these pipelines that break really easily. And then anytime uh, some, someone asks for any kind of change in the way the data is modeled, requires a change in like 10 different pipelines. It's just a, a very difficult thing. So wouldn't it be nice if I didn't have to move my data into like 10 different warehouses? What if all the tools that I want to use could just operate on the data in my data lake? Okay. And then, you know, I just have one copy of the data and all my tools can talk to it. The, you could do that in the past. The problem is you couldn't really do it very fast. It was very limited in functionality. And the reason being is that when you work with like a database or a data warehouse, there's a lot going on under the hood. There's a lot of components that make it work. There's like the way the data is stored. There is metadata on that data that allows the processing of that data to be more efficient. And then there's the actual processing. Okay. So if we, so if we want to mirror that, in the data lake world, well, we have the way we store our data. So we store our data in the data lake, which could be like object storage, like an Amazon S3 or on-prem Hadoop storage or you know many other variations. That would be where we store our data. But then we need to store that data in files. And that's where like Apache Parquet, another Apache project comes into play, offering a very efficient format to store data for analytical purposes. But the thing is, your data sets, oftentimes, especially for big data, your data sets not just one parquet file. It might be 10 parquet files. It might be 100 parquet files. It might be 1,000. It might be a million parquet files. So in that case, I don't want to be thinking about my data as a million parquet files. I want to be thinking it as one data set, one table. And that's where Apache Iceberg comes in. What it does, it creates the abstraction of me to look at that million parquet files as one singular table that I could run SQL on. Um, so basically now when I have a Apache iceberg table, any tool that knows how to, who applies the Apache iceberg standard can then talk to that data. And now all my tools can talk to one copy of my data. And this creates a whole new pattern or enables a whole new pattern called data lake house, where basically instead of doing all that data warehouse, like activity and a separate storage in a data warehouse. I'm going to do all that data warehouse like activity on the data I have stored in my data lake. So it's basically data warehouse type functionality with data lake storage, thus data lake house. And it's Apache Iceberg, who's one of those technologies that really enable that. There's really three table formats that sort of have speared this revolution. And that's Apache Iceberg, Apache Hoodie, and Delta Lake. Delta Lake's the only one that's not an Apache project. Technically, they're a Linux foundation project. There are some differences in sort of like what the requirements are to be part of which open source foundation, but um, I do have like an article on those sort of nuances, but um, that 
sort of is what Apache Iceberg is. So again, Apache Iceberg is essentially a standard way of writing metadata. So it's not how you write the data. The data will still be in Parquet files, Apache Parquet files. But Apache Iceberg is about how do we write data about our data that allows tools to work with it smarter. And one way to think about it, because a lot of times people are like, wait, what, metadata? Well, I always like to use the analogy, like imagine that you're in your kitchen and in the kitchen, you have all these tools out there. And let's say I'm looking for a spoon. Now I could just go through like every drawer and every cabinet looking for a spoon, but that would take too long. Now, what if I had a clipboard on the side of my kitchen that tells me where spoons are stored, where the plates are stored? That's the metadata, okay? That, that clipboard is not my spoon, but it makes it a lot easier for me to find my spoon and a lot faster for me to find my spoon. So Apache Iceberg is like that clipboard of metadata that allows me to look through all those parquet files much faster and much smarter, allowing me to do all sorts of things I could not do before. Do you find that it's confusing to keep track of all the Apache products that are necessary? And when people are developing a new project, are you thinking about, um, I guess, what other potential Apache projects will be needed to interact? Like, what does that network look like? There's like hundreds and hundreds, maybe even thousands of Apache pro projects that are inside the Apache portfolio. And I'm not going to know all of them, nor am I going to use all of them. Like Hadoop technically now is an Apache project and Hive is Apache project. The only thing that I care about is that when I see that word Apache, it just means I know that, that is an independent community run project. Now, whether it's relevant to my immediate needs as a developer, because some of it's data related, some Apache projects are data related, some of them are web related, uh, some of them are for other spaces in the, in the tech. I know they're all going to be something that I can generally use in the software space, but um, best thing is like, you know, you run into the ones you need when you run into them. Like a lot of the ones I know is because of the specific Lakehouse space. I know, hey, when for Dremio, trying to build like an a, a, a ultimate tool to enable this sort of lake house pattern, there's a you know, there's those different components. So the files, the table format, and the processing. And so Dremio really does a lot on that processing side. So it looks okay, how how am I going to be able to process data the best? I'm going to use that Apache Arrow format because other things are going to use Apache Arrow. And if we all use the same data format, data is going to move between those tools faster. And then also we're going to be able to process data in memory faster. So that's one way that Dremio optimizes the data lakehouse experience. Okay, Calcite again helps us like you know break down an SQL query and figure out how to make this query even better. So you can write a not as good SQL query, but Calcite will help optimize that under the hood, so you still have a more performant query. And so there's all these pieces that are relevant to the space that we're in that the engineering team will be like, okay, hey, these are the things that are relevant to building the best tool that we can build for the, the problem we're trying to solve, how to make data lake house easier and faster. Enjoying this content so far? Well, I have some really good news for you. Our sponsor Dremio has a conference called Subsurface that happens annually. This year, it's going to take place in New York it will be on May 2nd and May 3rd, 2024. Now there's a virtual option to attend and that's the one that I've been participating in for the past few years. But this year, I'm actually going to try out to be a speaker. And the cool thing is you can too. The call for speakers for Subsurface this year 
is open right now and you have until December 22nd at 1159 p.m. Pacific time to submit. Dremio is looking for members of the Data Lake community to share experiences and expertise with building data lake houses, as well as key open source technologies such as Apache Iceberg, Apache Arrow, Spark, and more that you've already heard mentioned by Alex in this episode. Speaking at Subsurface not only gets you free entry to the event, but it also will give you some really amazing swag. Trust me, even attending the virtual event, I have seen the potential amazing hoodies and gadgets and other things that you will love, plus networking and the chance to help grow a community that's already quite large. There have been over 18,000 data engineers, architects, and scientists from all over the globe presenting at subsurface events. I know that I've already sold you to get in the ring with me and apply to be a speaker at the 2024 subsurface event. So head on over to sessionize.com slash subsurface where you can find the form and additional information. I have posted it in the show notes for your convenience. Now back to our show. I think one of the aspects of data lake houses that I find the most fascinating is that there really are a variety of ways that your process can develop. This is just an example, but like the whole ETL, ELT, like that's, that's a different order. And, you know, yes. when you're talking about um, a query being, you know, leaving something to be desired, say, and then Calcite can, you know, fix it for you. That's just, you know, another safety along the pipeline because I could write everything in SQL, like in my SQL open source, right? Before mm -hmm. um, filtering it, you know, I could also just um, do the bare minimum there and require and rely on this tool. And I heard you say that, you know, it's nice when people have the arrow format that you can, you know, make it really easy. But like, what happens when somebody doesn't? Or is this more of an internal process, like between people who are just already using the same system? Um, I mean, that's one of the benefits of being like labeled an Apache project. Usually, once something becomes an Apache project, or sort of like everyone knows, it's just a signal that being like, okay, this is neutral. This is a neutral tool. Um, there's not some other company that kind of controls this. So that way, if I build my company, if I build my company's tooling around this, it's not like some other company can just like shift the rules on me. Um, it's, it's, it's sort of neutral ground. So, um, Apache arrow has gotten huge adoption among a lot of data tools over the last few years. Like it actually, I think it's, if I'm pretty sure it started out as like a Dremio's internal memory format. So like Dremio was one of the original, sort of um, on the ground floor of Apache Arrow when it was first created. Um, and But now it's being used everywhere. It's being, you know, there's libraries in pretty much most languages for working with Arrow. Um, it's becoming very much the standard of how, especially big data tools 
our our handling processing just because you need the performance. Um, and but yeah, I mean, if you're working with not if you're working with a tool that doesn't store data in Apache Arrow in memory, then there are serialization deserialization costs. Um, and before that was a much bigger problem because everybody had their own way of representing data. So every time I would move data from one tool to another tool, it was really slow because I'd have to take the data from one place and convert it to how the data should look like for another place under the hood. And that takes time. But if everyone uses the same view of the data, then I can just move the data as is and you skip all those steps of conversion. And then you, you save, and then, yeah, you save time. Um, and so that way you can, all the work can actually just be the calculating, not just the restructuring of data. Um, so um, I think the Apache Arrow project has been one has gotten pretty good adoption. Same thing with Apache Iceberg. Apache Iceberg, since since I started, has really come a long way for its adoption and embracing by the community. I do think there's something you said again. I think I think do think the Apache brand helps in that, like because there's a certain there's a certain maturity the project has to have for Apache to sort of accept you as into their portfolio. And then so there's a certain level of maturity of the project. You can kind of assume when it once once it is an Apache project that it does kind of give people sort of a sense of security and being like, I can use this. Uh, so it's open source that I can comfortably sort of like embrace uh, without, you know, suddenly tomorrow there being no support for it or um, anyone steering it in the wrong direction. It's interesting to me to kind of view a brand, a marketing entity as being kind of an unspoken or de facto security method that people can recognize. You know, it's one of those ways where I find like marketing can be very, a very strong power for good because a strong brand, especially for like a strong brand that allows people to have sort of certain levels of certainty and safety in making choices, like is great. And I think um, Apache is a very, very, is an example of like a brand that, you know, basically enables, enables people to be able to make smarter and safer decisions in a space that sometimes it can be difficult to, you know, choose like where do I kind of make my long-term investments and what library should I use? And, you know, you can easily get burnt where you, you know, you, you, you build your project around tools that suddenly become no longer that no longer get any support. And now you have to kind of re-engineer things. Um, Apache is a brand that really kind of helps clarify and um, makes it easier to know where people can kind of invest their time, which is, I think, uh, a very positive thing. And then I would assume that the community is pretty um, tight knit and that the community gets excited for new projects and new capabilities. Each project generally has a fairly robust community. That's part of the requirements to be part of Apache. Like you have to have a certain amount of people who are involved from different companies. So that way, again, the idea being like no one company really has control over the project because it's, it's 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 so basically they expect that you have a decent amount of groundswell support of people who are involved who are contributing code who are from different walks so that way it's it's a to maintain that sort of net neutrality because there's two risks one i mean if there isn't a community then what happens if a, someone starts supporting it and if it's controlled by sort of a particular entity it may be a great technology but if you're a company building your business around it, like this is where like basically there's like a lot of debate between sort of like Apache Hoodie, Apache Iceberg versus like sort of Delta Lake and sort of its openness. And I think a lot of people sort of misunderstand sort of like the tenor of, of, of that, that argument where they think it's like the idea is like which one's open for the sake of openness. Like, yes, like, you know, open's nice. But the idea is that um, companies who build support for these tools, they have to invest money 
Um, and these are not short-term choices. It's not like, okay, hey, I can build my data infrastructure against around one of these table formats and then just switch it on a dime. As the consumer, you want to make sure that there's going to be plenty of tools that can work with that data format. So whether it's an iceberg hoodie or, or Delta Lake. But the thing is that that means do the tools want to build that support? And the problem is like, hey, if a particular format is sort of controlled by one entity, what happens is that someone can build their whole tool around that technology, have no control over it. And then if that other party just changes that format or makes some sort of change that breaks it or makes some big change that they think is really cool, but guess what? They just broke your product. That, you know, that that can that makes it really hard for um, you know, other products to more broadly sort of like really rally around that, which is what's nice about Apache Iceberg. Like you don't change like there's always a lot of changes going on, but they all happen through a process and it's all very visible to everyone. So if you are someone who creates a product, so, you know, if you are Dremio, if you are Trino, if you're any of these tools that support uh, Apache Iceberg, you're well aware of what's coming down the pipeline for Apache Iceberg and can build around it and be prepared for it. So that way all tools can kind of support it. And it, again, there's, there's sort of no one who can just like dictate, dictate it in the shadows. What kind of knowledge or what kind of person would you say would be drawn to you know being part of an apache project as a career i've noticed a lot of like in-house apache experts popping up across corporations i guess the way that usually evolves is that a company decides that they want to use this technology as part of their product so different companies use iceberg either as like their data consumer or they're building a platform to use with iceberg and they want to make sure that they so they're involved in the evolution of iceberg for their product. So oftentimes they'll have in-house developers who are part of like the actual iceberg community to make sure that certain things get added that help the tool work with their platform or to kind of be their voice in the community um, for, for whatever that company's concerns are. So oftentimes those sort of open source developers that get hired at a company, they're there to kind of be sort of like the representative kind of like, you know, if you imagine like each open source projects uh, community is kind of like, like the Congress. Like they're like the representative that are going to go out there and sort of like be your the voice for your piece of the story and where your interests are. So that way, when everyone discusses it, everyone's interests are, are represented, um, not, you know, theoretically in the architecture, which is sort of a more high level discussion, and then also in the code, the actual implementation going forward. Yeah, thank you for explaining kind of how that structure, I guess, or partnership evolves. If my listeners are hearing this and, you know, fascinated as I am about um, different Apache projects, where do you get started? I know you yourself have a lot of background with learning computer science and coding. So you understand, you know, self-learning and the process of finding resources. I think the best place to start is actually just to contribute. And the best way to do that is you go to one of the repos. So for um, Apache Iceberg, they're pretty good about actually like the way you would do is you when you would go take a look at the repository on GitHub for Iceberg and any of the Iceberg projects. So there's one for like each language. So there's the main Iceberg library, which is Java. Then there's now a separate repository for the Python implementation. And then there's a separate library, there's a separate repository for the Rust and Go implementation. So depending on what language you feel most comfortable with, you can go to that repository, uh, make your fork, your copy of the code, 
and you go over to the issue section and there's a list of issues and some of them they'll, they'll mark like, okay, you know, beginner friendly, you know, like this would be a good one for someone who's just looking for their first contribution to check out. And in the beginning, it's going to take a second to kind of get used to it because you have to kind of like figure out, okay, how is this code already structured and written? But once you start making those first initial contributions, I mean, one, you'll appreciate the project a lot more and you'll, you'll, you'll be surprised like how involved you get over time. But then two, um, you know, those, 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 that actual activity then puts you, makes you a great candidate for roles of like open source developer in, in other companies who are looking for developers who do, you know, help out in their open source efforts. How would you suggest, I guess this is, this is branching more into, you know, your advice as an expert in the field, but like, how would you, how would you suggest overcoming imposter syndrome to go and contribute? You know, um, I know that GitHub people are so friendly, you know, it's not it's intimidating. Yeah, it's not the darker side of Stack Overflow yeah. or anything, but it's Fair like, enough. <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> the best way is to do very small bits. Like like the what happens, I think a lot of times like people get eager. Um, so then what they do is they 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 promise they're gonna do they take on a big change bigger than they're familiar with the code base is at that moment. Look for something really, really small because you'd be surprised. Like even the smallest thing, if it's your first contribution, can take you some time because you have to see how all these different pieces of code connect. Um, so just start really small and start really humble. Okay, no one's gonna bite your head off for asking a question. You know, if you're, you know, depending on how you approach them. Like if you just be like, hey, you know, I have this issue. Usually, I think people, especially in the Apache Iceberg community, people are pretty nice. Um, so I don't, I don't, I don't foresee that being too much of an issue. Uh, there. So I encourage everyone to go take a look at the Apache Iceberg repo and see where they can contribute because it's a great project and a great place to get started with open source. Um, particularly, you know, right now, there's definitely a good need for more and more people to help out on the Python side of the project and Rust and Go, which is those repositories just started. So they're really early on, which means there's a lot of low hanging food as far as contributions go. And also one thing I would do once in a while, I just write libraries. Like what I used to do to really get comfortable with certain things like anytime i found like a particular library really interesting i would try if i can make something that does the same thing not necessarily as good my, my goal wasn't to create a better like let's say a better react if we're talking about the web development side but to create something that works like react just because if i can build something that works like it i'm probably gonna have a deeper understanding of how it works because i create something like it which means i probably have to go through so many of the same challenges to create it that and think through them as the actual thing did. But as I did that, I had a deeper appreciation for much more deeper implementations on sort of like the steps they have to go through and the things they have to think through and why they build things certain ways. And having that deeper appreciation, that deeper understanding has helped me manage sort of like that, sort of like that, that, that imposter syndrome that's always constantly in all in the back of all our minds, no matter how long you've been doing this. The way I would start is to kind of go in and do some like spruce up some kind of basic translations or errors that have to happen you yeah. know um, like typos are great docs contributions are great like docs are a great place to get started you get some commits and um you know basically it's just you know you helping because a lot of times a lot of these open source projects they don't have the greatest documentation because everyone who's on the project is so focused on the actual code that they're not fleshing out the documentation to explain 
the, the the terminology or the examples enough for people who are reading the docs so they can definitely always use more help on the documentation side because you know you want it to be like osmosis like you want to kind of go into a new community and then just kind of learn the ropes by doing at least that's how I always have learned and so you know it's nice to know too that there are probably several lines of code that haven't even been checked so you can like go through and check if it works and then just put a comment like this didn't work for me you know that's not even changing anything necessarily that's just providing feedback Issues are always appreciated in any project because a lot of times people aren't aware of what issues there are with it. And a lot of times people run into bugs and they never escalate them. So adding an issue to that GitHub repository goes a long way. Before we talk a little bit more about your teaching, because that is exciting to me, I just want to get in some more clarification on Apache Iceberg. I want to know who it helps the most. Like how can an understanding help somebody at a higher up level who like normally does low code, uh, you know, work, but might want to understand how Apache Iceberg works to kind of help make decisions. I mean, Apache Iceberg is good when you're working with very large data sets. So for example, if I'm working with like one gig worth of data, that could probably be a single parquet file. And basically then in that case, the parquet file, the Apache parquet file is good enough because Apache parquet has its own metadata at the file level that allow like the engine to know, okay, how to scan that file smarter. I mean, Apache iceberg is more about saying, hey, you have a million files. Do I really need to scan all million files? So the metadata is going to be sit there and say, okay, well, these files cover this part of the data. These files cover this part of the data. And then like a tool like Dremio can be like, well, you have a million files that are this data set. You're looking for, let's say, let's say pretend like a voter database. You're looking for all the voters in Georgia. Okay. Well, in that case, the, all the voters in Georgia are only in these files. So really these are the only files I need to scan and you save yourself the trouble of scanning all the other files. So from the end user's perspective, like they don't necessarily need to know the ins and outs of Apache Iceberg works, but essentially what it's doing, it's tracking all those stats and all those individual files to allow the processing tool, the Dremios, the Trinos, um, to much more intelligently figure out which files of that data set they need to scan. Um, and then basically from the end user's point of view, they would use tools that embrace that format. So the Apache Spark, Apache Flink, Dremio, whatnot. So and the cool thing is you can work across tools. Okay, so like in typical patterns, like we mentioned ETL, ELT um, early on, what, what's been generally typical up till now for bigger data sets is that let's say, you know, I have, let's pretend I have a database for a social media app and it's like a Postgres database. I might ETL all my tables. So I'd E export so that I'd load all that data from my, my Postgres table into memory. And then I would transform it, you know, maybe I'll take some of those tables and denormalize them. So take two tables, turn them into one. Um, and then I would then load them into a bunch of parquet files in my data lake. Okay. And then now there's a bunch of all those files that were in this Postgres database are now in a better form for my analytics in the data lake. You're still technically doing that, but now when you use, like you could use, still use a tool like Spark to do that, but instead of landing it directly in parquet, it'll still write those same parquet files but it'll also write iceberg metadata on top of it. And then the way that tools should interact with it going forward is not directly to the files, but through the iceberg metadata. So it's just, again, a different 
entry point for how different tools interact with it. So Spark will consult the metadata before looking at the files. Dremio will consult the metadata before looking at the files, because again, I'd rather just know which files I need instead of looking at all the files. Um, but I can do that work directly from Spark and then continue running analytics on that data directly in Dremio. Uh, and basically, the data doesn't have to be copied again because all these tools can read the same data because it is in that standard format. So when you speak about Apache Iceberg to audiences, you know, at Dremio or um, on social media, et cetera, what are the main elements you seek to communicate? I guess the main thing I want people to appreciate is the architecture of Apache Iceberg in a sense. So like Apache Iceberg, first off, just appreciating like what it does. So again, the, the, the table format, because before people didn't even know what a table format was because generally that what the job of what a table format is, is something that you would never see. It's just something that's built into a database and it's not something you just generally know. You just know I have a bunch of tables in a database and they work. Yes, awesome. Um, it was those levels of, those how those abstractions are built was never something we generally deal with as consumers. So this whole idea of, so the data lake house is really sort of like, um, uh, what's the term I'm looking for? Um, when you like when you when you get food, but they break it up into these pieces, uh, it was like not broken down, decompartmentalized. No, deconstructed. Oh wait, yes, at the same time. Yes, jinx. <laughs> like um, deconstructed salad. That's what made me think exactly. About it. So a data lake house is essentially a deconstructed data warehouse. You're taking all the pieces and separating them instead of having. So instead of buying the whole data warehouse as one big bucket you're picking the pieces and assembling them yourself, which allows you, gives you this modular design where you can swap out those layers uh, depending on your needs and construct the right warehouse for your needs with the storage of your choice, with the data table format of your choice, with the data files of your choice, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So that's essentially like, so one, understanding that one, we're moving towards this deconstructed sort of warehouse, AKA the data lake house, and the table format's probably the most important piece. Because it's the, really the piece that wasn't there before. It's the piece that sort of completes the story. We had processing engines before, like like Dremio. We've had um, you know file formats like Parquet. We've had storage layers like S3 and Hadoop. All that stuff existed before, but now it can work differently and better because you have that layer that's Apache Iceberg. And Dremio lev leverages Apache Iceberg from top to bottom. It's probably I can't think of a platform that leverages Iceberg quite the same way that Dremio does. And because not only does it leverage it as a way you save data, so like I can, if I were to create a table in Dremio, um, you know, I can I create an iceberg table, and you don't even think about it. I just run a normal, you know, create table statement like I would in any SQL database, and I create a table. It's an Apache iceberg table. I don't even have to think about it. It just works. But the really interesting way that Dremio uses iceberg is that through a feature called data reflections. And basically what you can do is that Dremio allows you to federate data sources. So I can connect like my Postgres database, I can connect my Snowflake data warehouse, I can connect, you can collect data from anywhere, um, including iceberg tables. But one of the things is that, you know, sometimes you want to sp speed up the performance. Like, okay, it's maybe, maybe just querying my MySQL database by itself isn't fast enough. I want it to be a little bit faster. So data reflections allows you to turn on a switch and similar to materialized views in a, in a normal database, but uh, but better, um, what it does, it creates, depending on how you use it, but it, it, the simplest way to think about it is it creates a Apache iceberg version of your data. So basically next time anyone queries that table, so let's say we're talking about like a data, a table that's inside MySQL, or actually let's, let's use a CSV file. You uploaded a CSV file to Dremio, 
Problem is like CSV and JSON, especially if it's a really big CSV or JSON file, it's not going to be a very fast thing to query. So you turn on reflections on it. To you, you just have a CSV file. But under the hood, Dremio is creating an Apache Iceberg copy of it. That's going to be, a, and then every time you query the CSV file, it's going to swap it out under the hood and give you a much, much better performance because you're really querying the Apache Iceberg metadata and Parquet files that Dremio is keeping in sync for you. Usually what would happen is that maybe you save all your data in CSV and then you would have to make, you would have to manually create a data pipeline to load it into Parquet to get that performance benefit. And then you would have to rerun that pipeline all the time and maintain that pipeline to kind of get that same endpoint. In this case, basically a lot of the stuff that data engineers would create pipelines for get automated away thanks to Iceberg, thanks to Dremio through this data reflections feature. That's really cool to know. Um, I almost think of it as like scanning it in, in a mirror or something. Um, That's why it's called a reflection. Yeah. 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 The yeah. reflection <laughs> is, you know, all of these words are exciting that they're choosing, but like the reflection really has a, um, <laughs> I, I can see, you know, how the name really um works with the product yeah it's <laughs> it's super exciting because like there's certain patterns that, that that enables again because we have apache iceberg and we're able to build this reflections feature on top of it and you now are technically we're nearing on a world where you could create a world with zero etl where you don't necessarily have to do any any data movement like imagine this um you know i have again my data sources i connect them to dremio and then with Dremio, you don't necessarily have to create all these different versions of your data. Like usually what you would do is you would ETL your data into your data lake. Um, then you would ETL it into your data warehouse and then you would create data marts. And then those data, and all of these are copies of your data. And then each, each movement requires a pipeline that you have to maintain. And if one thing changes, so like at the very, very last table in the data mart, if I have to add like one column to it because I got an I got a request from the analyst, well now I have to go all the way back to the beginning and update each pipeline to make sure that that change is factored in, and this becomes sort of like really tedious. So even if I need a really really quick change, I as a data analyst may have to wait like three weeks to be able to have access to that change because the data engineer has to make all these changes. But with a zero ETL world, which Dremio enables, since you don't have to build all these pipelines. You just, it's every, if everything's done virtually, you connect, you work with the data source directly connected to Dremio. And then what you do is all the versions of the data are just really SQL statements that represent the different versions of the data. So you're changing it on the fly. And then whenever you need a little bit more speed, you just turn on reflections. So technically you never have to create any manual data pipelines. I mean, technically reflections are kind of doing that under the hood, but you're not manually doing yeah. it. So the maintenance of it. It sounds like a filter in the background kind of, mm -hmm. you know, like how when you record on the cloud and it's like quality controlling the whole time with you, you know, exactly. I've a lot of interviews from Tokyo <laughs> <laughs> when I spend time in Japan and I do I've done a lot of podcast interviews from Japan and like Japan has fast Wi-Fi. I'm not saying anything about that, but it's like I'm in a hotel and sometimes like it takes a minute to catch up and I see it calibrating, but it's like doing that at the same time as I'm actively recording and speaking. So, you know, I think that's, you know, under the hood or, you know, same thing, like it's automation that um, really can help. Yeah. So, I mean, that's what's exciting. Like basically all of these technologies have basically paved the world where basically, you know, platforms can, you can leverage those open source technologies to create these new patterns that will become sort of the, the cutting edge of the lake house architecture, uh, because data movement costs money. You know, every time you move data, you're paying for more storage when you make a copy, 
you are paying for that network cost because like places like S3, they'll charge you egress fees for moving your data from one point to another. So a, a world with less data movement and more direct data access makes the analyst life easier and the engineer's life easier. Apache Iceberg plays a big role in that. Apache Arrow plays a big role in that. Apache Calcite plays a big role in that. Um, you know, especially in helping all being unified under that sort of that Dremio platform. It's it's an exciting world, was my point. It sure is. And I'm hoping that my listeners share the same excitement as I do after hearing firsthand what's possible with these technologies. And as a media person who often covers new technologies, the way that you've described this makes me want to delve in myself and, you know, test the waters. Is there anything that we haven't covered that you'd like to add? I know we've gone through a lot of exciting new material. Um, I mean, one thing uh, I'll say is that another thing about sort of overcoming, especially in the data space, if you're if you're if you're interested in sort of like exploring more of the data engineering aspect. So like again, um pre-piecing together all these pieces to be able to deliver data from point A to point B. Um I've written a lot of tutorials as part of Dremio and I've tried to write them in the most accessible where like literally um they're they're easy enough to consume that anybody starting from scratch can can kind of execute the steps and then walk away with like a deep a deeper sense of what goes into data engineering and feeling comfortable with the concepts around it. So I highly recommend people going there to try out some of the tutorials. The one I'd recommend is one where I say it's like getting started with um, Dremio, Nessie, and Iceberg on your laptop because everything there can be done on your laptop. So there's no cost of having to get like cloud a cloud account or anything like that. It's just all spun up on your laptop, and you'll really get to see sort of like the whole step of like, okay, loading data into a data lake house, querying the data in the data lake house. And it'll give you a really hands-on for sort of like what all these, how all these pieces fit together. Cause there's another project called Nessie, which provides like Git for data, which is another open source project I didn't quite get into, but um, I have done a lot of talks on, um, but that, that blog, that tutorial will really kind of see how like that fits into iceberg, which fits into Dremio and see, get, get the hands-on experience to really appreciate um, that architecture. Well, thank you very much, Alex, for an information-packed episode that I'm sure my listeners will have learned a lot from. I want to remind you guys to check out the call for speakers that Dremio has for their conference subsurface before the end of this month when it's due. I put a lot of info about that in the show notes and also, as you heard in the middle of this episode. And though the year is wrapping up, we do have some more upcoming DataFem content for you to dig into before we say hello to 2024. And with that, I will see you next episode. Thanks as always for listening. You never